This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week is Steve Lombardozzi, second baseman for the Minnesota Twins, number 697. Okay, Steve Lombardozzi. We will get to him in just a moment. But first, David, I see in our notes for today, it looks like you have some apologies to make. Another mistake, or I think in this case, rather a misstatement. Apologies to Purdue University. I hope the next few minutes of chatter about your fine institution will make amends for my statement about the quality of quarterbacks in the history of Purdue University. Last week on the Gary Thurman episode, we were talking about Gary's decision to go into baseball rather than play college football at Purdue. I said something to the effect of playing quarterback at Purdue is not a surefire path to the NFL. We got a couple listeners. One Twitter user Tyler at MunLete0 said, following up on your Purdue quarterback's comment, that's actually a pretty good path to the NFL and not just Drew Brees. Not saying Thurman would have been part of that, though. And then he linked to a page titled Cradle of Quarterbacks at Purdue Sports. So apologies. Also, Brian, RBI correspondent and Zubaz enthusiast, pointed this out to me that Purdue calls itself the cradle of quarterbacks. In fact, they trademarked that term. So apologies that I only remember Drew Brees. I should have remembered Bears legend Kyle Orton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those very auspicious three seasons where he not, was nowhere near a touchdown per game. <laughs> it's just some of the dark days. <laughs> dark days of Bears quarterbacks. 1988 Tops football card haver Jim Everett. Purdue Mm. QB, as well as Hall of Famers, Bob Greasy, Len Dawson. Purdue is one of just two universities that can claim three Super Bowl champs. Alabama is the other. So regardless of my error, I guess would a 5'10", 165-pound Gary Thurman have been a Purdue quarterback at the time that Jim Everett was at Purdue? Probably not. More likely a defensive back, maybe a wide receiver. But that said, being a Purdue quarterback is an admirable and and quality job to have. I'm not denigrating the quality of that position. I think it's very likely that that Gary, with his speed, would have ended up as a wide receiver or defensive back. You know, at at 5'10, 165, certainly could have seen him as a corner or safety in college football and in the NFL, to be fair. But as we discussed last week, coming out in the baseball draft allowed him to yep, sign a bonus and get that money right away and uh, to help his family out. Matt, we like to talk about mascots on this podcast. How do you feel about the Boilermaker, Purdue Pete? Yeah, Purdue Pete. Since I did not go to college in the Big Ten, most of the time my exposure to Purdue was during the NCAA basketball tournament, which we are recording on the opening weekend of the tournament. And among my friends, when we looked at the mascot, we thought it bore a striking resemblance to the basketball coach at the time, Gene Cady. And we'll put this in the show notes, the picture of Purdue Pete and a picture of Gene Cady from the time, where he looks very much like the man. I don't know if I like mascots that are people with uniforms. 
I just, I don't know. I like animals as mascots, not guys where it's their job, you know, their job is the, is the mascot. I think it's kind of strange. That said, this Purdue Pete is, is very well built. He looks very strong. He has a giant head, and in older pictures of Purdue Pete, it looks like this giant fiberglass head that could not have been easy to wear. So you got to be strong to got to have some good neck strength to hold that up. The the term boiler maker is interesting too. The way that that came about in 1891, the Purdue football team didn't really have a name. They would be called things in different news reports. So news reports about games would say that they would call the Purdue team, Grangers or Pumpkin Chuckers or Rail Splitters, (laughs) Cornfield Sailors, Blacksmiths, Foundry Hands, and finally Boilermakers. And that came from an 1891 article titled Slaughter of Innocents. That's also a cannibal corpse record, Slaughter of Innocents. (laughs) But uh, the article said, Wabash snowed completely under by the burly Boilermakers from Purdue. So Purdue University had a locomotive lab, and the name was preferable to the more agricultural names that had kind of been used as a slight because Purdue was a public institution, and there was an assumption about the jobs that the children of the working class were going to be training for at Purdue University. So this kind of actually was a, a source of pride that they had this locomotive lab and focused on an engineering program. So Purdue Pete is a, a bit of a source of pride for them. Yeah, it's similar to other public universities like Texas A&M or Kansas State or other schools that have agricultural, engineering, or other kinds of programs like that. They end up with uh, derogatory names that end up taking off. And, you know, here, the burly Boilermaker, I mean, he's an intimidating figure, although it does look like he skipped leg day. (laughs) But he's able to wield that large hammer. This also brought us to Boilerman from West Bromwich Albion, go on your baggies. West Bromwich Albion soccer team in England, in the West Midlands, they had what was called the best mascot in the league, a man dressed as a combi boiler, which is a hot water heater slash heater, combi boiler. And Boiler Man, I like Boiler Man, it's just this legs and arms coming out of a giant square boiler. How does Boiler Man compare to Nazo Nosakana? So I think Nasuno Sakana is just a very versatile mascot. So he is both predator and prey. He's a musician and dancer. I would have a hard time seeing Purdue Pete being very mobile on the basketball court or football field or baseball diamond, given his extremely overgrown deltoids and trapezes. Yes. And between the three, I think Purdue Pete, might have some agility issues. Boiler Man would probably have some of those issues as well because he's carrying a full water heater as a body. If he's also pl- if he's also connected to a gas line, well then there's no there's no mobility at all. That's true, but he is explosive. Very very true. Well, I'm glad that we had a chance to set the record straight, if that's what we want to call what we just did there, David. I don't um, know what we did, but, <laughs> but we had some fun talking about Purdue University. Go on, you boiler man. Now to the card in Steve Lombardozzi. So why did we choose Steve this week? Steve Lombardozzi was suggested by at Boblin Mavs on Twitter. At Boblin Mavs didn't give a reason for the request, but he is a Minnesota Twins fan. He tweets a lot about Minnesota State Mavericks sports, so a lot of college hockey tweets. 
and he suggested Steve Lombardozzi. So we are finally getting around to some of these back in the mailbag. <laughs> That's right, fans. You ask and we deliver. So now looking at the front of the car, David, we have a bit of a strange pose where we've got Steve right after swinging and the picture is showing his back. And so you can't see his face at all. Is this the first or the second card that we've had where you can't even see the guy's face? I think Tim Tuffle's card, you could see yes. part of his face. Maybe his head was down and he was running toward first base. But yeah, this is you can see the side of Steve's face barely because his helmet is blocking it. But as Andy on the 1988 Tops blog pointed out, you can read his whole name, which is interesting, also considering it is a quite long name. At 11 letters, Lombardozzi, I think, is the longest name that we've done so far. So yeah, seeing the full name on his back is, is notable. We don't usually see that. You also don't see a lot of two Zs in a row in a name. And I was trying to search through, and maybe this is a flaw in the search system. We're going to need to talk to Adam over at Baseball Reference. I couldn't search for names with two Zs. Maybe I just couldn't find the right search terms. I can think of Piazza, Mark Zepchinski. His didn't have two Zs in a row. Jeff Pizzotti, singer from Naked Ray Gun. But he's not on Baseball Reference. Yeah, I, I was trying to fi- figure out if Steve is the best player with a double Z last name. I've got one. Oh. Lee Mazzilli. Lee Mazzilli. Also featured in the Wax Pack book. Brad Belukchin uh, interviewed Lee Mazzilli. Yes. So maybe there's more than I was thinking of. Having studied Italian for one semester in college, I can say that a double Z is, is not unusual in Italian. You think, of course, of pizza. And this leads me also, David, to asking about the pronunciation of Steve Lombardozzi, which in, according to my Italian professor in college, would have probably instructed us to say Mm -hmm. Steve Lombardozzi. When there's a double letter, you kind of pause right before it. You hold it longer and you cut the vowel short in front of it. So that's why it's pizza, Lombardozzi. And the double Z also makes kind of a TS sound instead of a Z sound. But however, in America, we say jacuzzi, not (laughs) Not not jacuzzi. (laughs) Yes, in videos that I watched of highlights and home runs, etc., that he hit, it was pronounced in the more Americanized way. All that aside, this is a pretty good action shot. You know, we can... We do see the full name because Steve's got a, a full swing here. Last week, we focused a lot on the color scheme of the cards. We've got the red border and the yellow twins. An orange nameplate as well. So only the red being a traditional Minnesota twins color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it looks okay. I think that it, it looks okay with the, the blue helmet. It kind of pops. The background here, we have the Oakland A's player sitting in the dugout wearing a what looks like a batting helmet. Maybe that's Terry Steinbach. Well, so as we go to the back of the card, I should also mention, David, (sighs) this is the fourth Minnesota twin we've, we've done on the show so far in here, our first season. So it's, it seems like the twins are very overrepresented. I, I don't know what the deal is with that. I have noticed that my Twitter feed has a lot of twins fans in it too. So I think there are a lot of twins fans who like this set because It represents a very good time for the Minnesota Twins, a World Series winning team. And we have 
not even really scratched the surface of this Twins team with Burt Blylevin, Juan Berenguer, Joe Necro, and now Steve Lombardozzi. We, we've not even touched any of the, the true superstars of this team. But always happy to talk about the Minnesota Twins. So flipping to the back for 697, Steve Lombardozzi, second baseman, six feet tall, 175, right-handed batter and thrower. Born April 26, 1960 in Malden, Massachusetts, and a home in Gainesville, Florida. We've made fun of Florida on here and Florida Man. But then I was looking at Gainesville, and I realized that I like basically all of the music from Gainesville, yes. Florida. And Matt, I know you're a big Tom Petty fan, but yes. also Against Me, Less Than Jake, Hot Water Music, and the late Charles Bradley, all Gainesville Floridians. So you can insert a clip of Less Than Jake's Gainesville Rock City here. And we'll Sounds pause. good. We'll do that. <laughs> he went to Buckholtz High School, Clay Buckholtz. Did not go there, but 2013 Red Sox World Series champ Andrew Miller did. That baseball team has a Steve Lombardozzi Hardest Worker Award that they give to their one of their players every season. So clearly, we're seeing a profile of Steve here, very hard worker. Didn't get drafted out of high school, but went to Gulf Coast Community College in 78 and 79. If that sounds familiar, it's because Don Sutton went there, another guy who maybe Discovered his form a little bit later, Don Sutton. Also a guy named Ray Liotta. Wait. (laughs) That that Ray Liotta? Not that one, but Ah. like that Ray Liotta's character in Field of Dreams, this other Ray Liotta played for the White Sox organization in the mid-2000s. Steve transferred to the University of Florida for 1980 and 1981 and made the all-SEC team in 81, drafted in the ninth round. So like I said, a little bit of a late bloomer. Unlike Oda B. McDowell, he wasn't drafted six times before his senior season. <laughs> and this was the first time he was drafted. And that's the the fun fact on the back of the card is that Steve signed as a ninth round draft selection with the Minnesota Twins June 18th, 1981 by scout Fred Waters. We'll get some more Fred Waters information at a future episode. But Steve <laughs> goes on to minor league ball immediately in Elizabethton. Shows some skills in rookie ball, hitting 321 with an 894 OPS, which is mm. pretty good for a second baseman. Moves up to Visalia in A ball, then Orlando, hitting over 290 in both of those seasons. Not a lot of power, some doubles, decent number of walks, and solid RBI totals for a second baseman at A and AA. His average flattens out a little bit at AAA at Toledo, drops down to 249. And he stays in AAA for 1985 as well. That season, he showed a little bit more power in 118 games. He uh, ends up hitting 14 home runs. In previous seasons, his high was nine. So adding a little bit more power to his game. He also, in 1985, earns himself his first call-up to the majors. Yes, he got called up in July for four games. And then he got sent back down. He didn't get a hit. Didn't really do much in those first four games. Bit of a false start. He ends up getting called back up in September, and he hit 400 over the rest of that season. Yeah, very nice. Looking in those 28 games, he ends up hitting 370 with four doubles, a triple, and three steals. So a lot of extra base hits in his first season. Yeah, and especially in a very short sample size, he was defensively very, very good. He added 1.1 defensive wins above replacement in those 28 games. 
That was the ninth best total among second basemen. Everyone ahead of him had 100-plus games. So in a very short season, he made a pretty big impact defensively and had the eighth best overall wins above replacement on the Twins. So all of the players ahead of him had 100-plus games. And this season is actually historically great for a short sample size season. And Matt, this is this is getting deep into the stat head search. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third highest wins above replacement of any player with fewer than 30 games played in a season. I thought it was kind of an odd coincidence that the highest total in that search was Cabrian Hayes, who is a third baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that was in 2020. The second highest was a guy from 1871. <laughs> and third is Steve Lombardozzi. So it was largely on the basis of his great defense, but he also had pretty good offensive numbers, as you as you discussed. And Lombardozzi so, does so well that the Twins' other second baseman, Tim Tuffle, uh, that we covered in a previous episode, it leads Tim Tuffle to request a trade. It looks like he sees the writing on the wall that he's probably not going to be starting next year, and he ends up getting sent to the Mets. And Tim Tuffle shuffles his way to a World Series win in 1986, and Steve Lombardozzi earns the starting spot for the Twins at second base. So moving into 1986, Steve had uh, had a bit of a dip on offense. His batting average fell quite a bit to 227. Yeah, in his first full season, he hits he hits eight home runs and has 20 doubles, which is consistent with the way that he was playing in the minor leagues. Continues to have solid defensive numbers. And in fact, he is a league leader on defense, leading the American League with a 991 fielding percentage. And this was also the most games that he played in a season in his career with 156. So 1986, as we've discussed in the previous Twins episodes, was kind of a turning point for them. They end the year 71 and 91. They fired their coach late in the season and bring third base coach Tom Kelly into the manager role. The team has Kirby Puckett, Kent Herbeck, Gary Gaetti, Frank Viola, Burt Blylevin, and they really have the core of their 1987 team in place. So with the manager change, things really start hitting in 1987. Very good power hitting team, but Kirby Puckett was their only all-star in 1987, so it was very much a cast of characters. And they were outscored by their opponents in the regular season by 20 runs. Hmm. It a pretty unexpected run to the World Series. This team only won 85 games. So not your traditional World Series champ. That was actually the lowest win total up to that point of any World Series champ. Steve was an unlikely hero for that Twins team. Even though he wasn't hitting well for a lot of the season, it it was probably his best offensive season of his career. 238, (laughs) again, eight home runs, which not very good in the rabbit ball year. 19 doubles, three triples, but he played a starring role in some very important moments, both in the regular season and the postseason. Yeah, the first one on September 29th, he was the star of the the game that clinched them the AL West. He had a three-run homer and a tie-breaking single in the Twins' 5-3 victory over the Rangers, and he also caught a line drive and turned a double play for the last two outs of the win that sealed the AL West Winning the division with only 85 games is, yeah, very unusual. Going into the playoffs against a highly favored Tigers team, 
they're both fortunate to be in the playoffs, let alone win that ALCS against the very good Tigers team. And they won four games to one, thanks in part to Juan Berenguer's heroics. You can revisit that in the Juan Berenguer episode. Steve played in all five of those games against the Tigers and hit 267, drove in two runs in the clinching Game 5 win, and was part of that triumphant return to the Metrodome with 50,000 screaming fans and Juan Berenguer in his trench coat. (laughs) It is a scene I will never forget. And I I watch that video at least once a week. (laughs) You have a a thrilling life, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? 2021 is going great. So, but now to the World Series and the Twins are playing the Cardinals who had won 95 games in the regular season. They had beat the Giants in seven. They had some injury issues. So Jack Clark had been their really their only power hitter in the regular season and he was out. So this was a a well-matched opponent for the Twins and the series also went to seven games. Steve Lombardozzi inexplicably was the best hitter for the Twins. After a 238 average in the regular season, he hit 412 in the series. He played in six of their seven games, including all four Twins victories. And um, according to baseball reference, Steve had the highest championship win percentage added of all the Twins batters. That shows that he had some really clutch hits and important plays, including a home run in game one. In game six, he went three for four. And in the fifth inning, in a tied 5-5 ball game, he drove in the go-ahead run with a two-out single. So really clutch plays. Great series for Steve. He didn't get the MVP award. That goes to Frank Viola, who got wins in games one and seven. But really a heroic performance from Steve Lombardozzi. And this, I did not watch this (laughs) holding out for a hero highlight reel. It's just the highlights. We will post in the show notes a... A video with the highlights of the 1987 World Series for the Twins set to Bonnie Tyler's Holding Out for a Hero. I think there's no better soundtrack for that era. I think that John Goodman is in the crowd. There's a very large bearded man. At the 12 second mark, there's a very large man who kind of looks like Simone's boyfriend from Pee-wee's Big Adventure who chases Mm. Pee-wee around the dinosaur park. I'm looking. Yes. (laughs) So Steve wins a World Series ring, does not win an MVP award. However, he gets an even more important honor, and that is to be included in RBI Baseball. And you know what that means. It's time to go to the RBI Baseball Corner with Brian. And we're back in the RBI Baseball Corner with Brian. Brian, welcome back. And this week we're talking about the Twins again, which per your contract requires us to play the Berenguer Boogie at this point. Nothing better than the Berenguer Boogie. So the Twins, you know, they're a really fun team to play with in RBI baseball. One thing we didn't talk about last time is they have some very fun names. You know, Kent Herbeck, who seems to be missing a vowel, Kirby Puckett, Tom Brunanski, that sounds like 
Butarsky. And then you've got a guy who makes you think of grade school orchestra and Frank Viola. So they're a lot of fun to play with. You know, they've got quite a bit of power, very heavily right-handed, but they don't have a great bench. Do have a really good righty starter with great endurance of Burt Blylevin and another lefty with good movement in Frank Viola. So the Twins are always fun to play with in RBI baseball and great to be back here to talk about the Twins. Excellent. And this week's player is Steve Lombardozzi. So what can you tell us about Steve in the game? Sure. Yeah. Steve Lombardi. So he was a longtime jobber in the WWF or enhancement talent, as it's known. You know, the guy who goes out and eats pins, makes the other guy look good. And then back in this late 80s era, he reinvented himself as the Brooklyn Brawler. And he came to the ring wearing a, a T-shirt that was all torn up, a torn up Yankee shirt and this weird ascot-like hat. Uh, he was a henchman for Bobby the Brain Heenan for a while and feuded with the Red Rooster, Terry Taylor, one of the worst gimmicks ever in wrestling history, who kind of came to the ring with his hair spiked up, dyed in red, pointing his face forward like a rooster would kind of cock along. Um, used that gimmick into the 1990s. That said, he's not in RBI baseball, nor is he in NES pro wrestling alongside King Slender or Fighter Hayabusa. So I'm not sure why you'd want to talk about uh, Steve Lombardi. Yeah, Brian, thank you for that update on Steve Lombardi. We are, we're talking about Steve Lombardozzi. Oh, Steve Lombardozzi. Okay, got it. Well, he hits about as well as the Brooklyn Brawler. So unfortunately, in RBI baseball, you don't get any credit for defense. So you're not really tapping into Steve Lombardozzi's best attribute. He's the number eight hitter for the Twins, has the lowest power of any of the Twins regulars, not a great contact rate. He isn't very fast. According to an online ranking of RBI baseball batters, he ranks 104th out of 120 between Larry Herndon and Marty Barrett, both of whom are players that you generally sub out. He's a player whose skills actually do match his stats, though. This is something that we've talked about where sometimes the on-screen stats are a bit misleading with the player attributes. Steve Lombardi, I'm sorry, Steve Lombardozzi hitting 238 with eight home runs. That's about the quality of batting you're getting from him. Oof. Steve Lombardi weighing in at 238 or more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is about his weight. Although in wrestling, you never know what they actually weigh. You just know what they tell you. Steve Lombardi also with a what looks to be a Gene Cady comb over. So, <laughs> so we do have that going for him. So, Brian, is it worth playing him at all or do you just sit him to start with? I'd go ahead and sit him. You know, he's not great in this game. And the Twins bench itself isn't great, but they could use another lefty in the lineup. And so it probably makes sense to swap in Randy Bush or Gene Larkin into that number eight spot. Brian, before you head out, I did want to publicly acknowledge something. On Twitter, friend of the show, at Tecmo Bowl versus RBI Baseball, who runs some RBI Baseball tournaments, has praised your work here on the show and... I'll quote from him. He said, your RBI correspondent does a great job. You can tell he's well-versed in the player ratings and has a good amount of in-game experience. So I think that's high praise from a, a, a noted expert in the field of RBI baseball. And you know that we appreciate your expertise and the time that you put into this. So thanks again for joining us and talking both about the Brooklyn Brawler, MVP, Abe Knuckleball Schwartz, and Steve Lombardozzi Sr., not Jr., Yes. Well, hopefully my work as the pro wrestling correspondent for the 1988 Tops podcast will get similarly glowing reviews. And who knows, maybe one of these days we'll have some sort of Tecmo Bowl tie-in that we can also talk about as part of the show. Ooh, great. Thanks, Brian. And we're back. So Steve comes off this amazing World Series. The Twins go to visit the White House to see President Reagan. 
as you do. And we see here President Reagan like keeps giving shout outs to Steve Lombardozzi. Like Steve's like top of the world. Like what could go wrong? Yes, Ronald Reagan in the Reagan Library archives, you can find the speech, his remarks congratulating the World Series champion Minnesota Twins. Of course, I did a word search for Lombardozzi. There's multiple references to Steve, and President Reagan said, Steve Lombardozzi no longer needs to worry about hearing the term Twinkie anymore, followed by laughter. Excuse me? (laughs) Yeah, referring to the Minnesota Twins as Twinkies. Wow. Like they were not a good team or that they were soft or that they last forever on a shelf. All of these are very good, very creative references for for Ron Reagan. However, the threat is not from a Hostess product, David. The threat for Steve Lombardozzi comes soon after because the twins make an, a totally inexplicable move to trade for a different second baseman, Tommy Herr, who they just faced in the World Series. In retrospect, this was a terrible idea. Terrible idea. (laughs) Probably at the time, it was a terrible idea, and it seems like nobody really asked any of the players involved in the trade or the players on the field. So you have Steve, who's kind of a light-hitting second baseman, and they were looking for a better hitter at the top of the lineup. Steve had been the number nine hitter, if you can get Tommy Hurd in the leadoff spot or the number two spot, Tommy Hurd is a much better offensive player than Steve Lombardozzi. Tommy Hurd didn't want to play in Minnesota. He loved playing in St. Louis and wanted to play there for his whole career. He said he cried on the plane on the way to Minnesota. They traded Tom Bernanski away. Tom Bernanski was an ALCS star, loved by the fans, loved by his teammates. Gary Gaetti said... It was like a cold shower and a slap in the face at the same time. So this probably all worked out great, right? Yeah, I'm sure. It sounds like it was amazing. Tommy Hurt was okay in the 86 games that he played in Minnesota, but he said he felt like an intruder. He spent some time on the disabled list, and he said that he didn't want to come back in 1989. So clearly not having a good time. Tom Bernanski was never an all-star again, but he was still decent for the Cardinals for a couple seasons. And then you have Steve Lombardozzi, who saw the writing on the wall that the Twins are willing to replace him. He demanded a trade, and the Twins spent the next 10 months trying to find a trade partner. He ends up only hitting 209 that year, and things bubble over, David. This resentment ends up building into a fight with his teammate. Teammate brawl in Dan Gladden's front yard. Oh my gosh. In July of 1988, there was a game in Boston. Steve is pulled for a pinch hitter. He gets mad and storms off to the clubhouse. That didn't go over well with his teammates. There's some jawing. Dan Gladden didn't like it. They may have had some words. The next day, (laughs) they're back in Minneapolis Lombardozzi goes to Dan Gladden's house to settle things, smooth things over, and instead (laughs) they had some more words and punches. Dan Gladden cracked a bone in his ring finger on Steve's face. Ooh! Lombardozzi arrives for the next game with a black eye, scratches down the side of his face, and neither player commented on the matter. Tom Kelly (laughs) said they settled it like men. My understanding (laughs) is that everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, I bet. 
I thought maybe that that would have spurred Steve on to some kind of greater performance. Maybe the second half of the season was much better than the first, but not really. He had hit 211 before the fight and 207 after. He played in 103 games in 1988, largely because Tommy Herr was injured and angry. But Steve wanted out. Yeah, can't blame him. The Twins, they end up trading Steve and Tommy Herr. So they send Tommy Herr to the Phillies at the, at the end of 88 and bring in Wally Backman and then send Steve out in March of 1989. He finally gets sent to Houston. Steve had been waiting for this trade for 10 months. He said that he wasn't going to show up to spring training. He was ready to play, but he had been working out at the University of Florida's facilities and was just waiting to try to figure out where he was going to play and move on from what he felt was a slight and seems pretty disrespectful to a guy who won them a World Series or really helped win that World Series and had a great series and was not a great hitter, but a great defensive player. And yeah, he goes to Houston and he really... That's the end of his career. He plays 23 games over two seasons. Mostly he plays in AAA in 89 and in 90 plays two games for the Astros. And then is released and signed by the Tigers, plays a little bit more in AAA, but he's 30 and he calls it a career. In his career, Steve played in 446 games. He had a 233 batting average, 20 home runs, 107 RBIs. Still a light hitter for, for much of his career, but a good fielder. He had a career 983 fielding percentage and was a solid second baseman for the Minnesota Twins for four seasons. So in his retirement, looks like he went into coaching at a, at a number of different levels. He started the Double Play Academy in Maryland, which seems to still be in business. And they're training young players, and he has a bunch of pro endorsements on that page. He also raised a family. He has, I, I believe, a couple kids, one of whom, Steve Jr., went on to play in the major leagues. And so Steve spent a lot of time, clearly, training Steve Jr. as well. He also was an infield coach in the Pirates minor league system and a high school coach at a school in Maryland. Steve Jr. played part of six seasons in Major League Baseball with the Nationals, Orioles, Pirates, and Marlins. Like his dad, he was one of the best second baseman around, and he was a minor league gold glove winner. An interesting note on Steve Sr.'s website, Steve Jr. established a 100-plus year all-time minor league fielding record for infielders, making two errors. He posted the best single season fielding percentage ever recorded by a shortstop, second, or third baseman with over 600-plus total chances in the history of the minor leagues. <laughs> I I could not find any verification on that, but I trust the website. Seems like a solid source for Steve Lombardozzi Jr. and Sr. News. That is amazing. What an accomplishment. So only two errors out of an entire season with more than 600 chances. That is extremely impressive. So congrats to Steve Jr. So now that we've closed the book on Steve and Steve Jr. and any other Steve's Lombardozzi out there, what do you think of this card, David? I didn't know much about Steve Lombardozzi going into this. I wasn't really sure what role he played with the Twins. I knew from the Tim Tuffle episode that they had this hot shot second baseman who came in and forced Tim Tuffle out of the lineup. But I didn't really know much about him. I would have thought he was a 250 hitter, decent defender. That seems like par for the course for a second baseman in the 80s. 
from his statistics, was a very good defensive second baseman. In the course of his career, he had more wins above replacement defensively than he did offensively. In one season, he had 1.4 wins above replacement defensively in 1987 compared to 0.3 offensively. So he's um, much more accomplished on the defensive side of things, and that seems to be what he's training young players to do and what he's trained his son to do. There's something interesting about a guy who was not incredibly highly touted, wins a World Series and is the star of a team with Kirby Puckett, Gary Gaetti, and Kent Herbeck. But then the twins start to look away and look for something else. And that replacement, that, that must have been disappointing for Steve. And it's clear that his career just didn't really get back on track after that disappointment and, and frankly, disrespect that the, the twins had for him. Sure, he wasn't playing great, but he was also 28 years old. It's not like he was over the hill at that point. So that trade for Tommy Herr just seems like a real nail in the coffin for Steve. So it's disappointing, and that was disappointing to read about, that I couldn't really find much about why he left and why he was gone other than you see the new guy come in and your your, your time is clearly up. Yeah, I guess what it brings up to me is in so many of these stories, it's just some very questionable decisions made by management on how to build their team, how to treat their players, how to keep a team going, what to do when you've succeeded and what to do when you need to turn things around. Just some really questionable decisions here. You know, but for a role player who you know is not a big hitter, but then is a clutch hitter and wins you some games, it it does seem strange to treat him so poorly. We've talked about role players on here a few times, and I don't know if we've talked about any who had such heights of accomplishment in a World Series. And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe we can go back and, and find one. But at least not in the year of the card. That you know, Looking at this card, Steve, at this time, is coming off of the highest of highs. And unfortunately, his career went into a into decline from there. It is unfortunate, but he did reach those high heights. So a, a great story and a, and a full one. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to Bobble and Mavs for the suggestion of this Steve Lombardozzi card. Thank you to Brian for the RBI Baseball Corner. And thanks to you at home. If your bracket's busted already, too, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.